Our sermon text today is from the first chapter of Deuteronomy, beginning at verse 19 and reading through verse 46 at the end of the chapter. Deuteronomy 1, 19 through 46. Which I will follow with a reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 32. Forty years in the wilderness, wanderings have passed and the people of God are assembled there on the plains of Moab. Moses, who has been with them, leading them, suffering them for all of those years, is addressing them before they cross over into the Jordan. And he's speaking of their history together. Hear the word of God, beginning at verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, just as the Lord our God had commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is about to give us. See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you approached me and said, Let us send men before us, that they may search out the land for us and bring back to us word of the way by which we should go up and the cities which we shall enter. The thing pleased me, and I took twelve of your men, one man for each tribe. They turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. Then they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. And they brought us back a report and said, It is a good land, which the Lord our God is about to give us. Yet you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you grumbled in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are bigger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified to heaven, and besides, we saw the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, Do not be shocked, nor fear them. For the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness... For you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. But for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry and took an oath, saying, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and to his sons I will give the land on which he set foot, because he has followed the Lord fully. The Lord was angry with me also. On your account, saying, not even you shall enter there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter there. Encourage him, for he will cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones, who you said would become a prey, 
and your sons, who this day have no knowledge of good or evil, shall enter there. And I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn around and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Then you said to me, we have sinned against the Lord. We will indeed go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us, and every man of you girded on his weapons of war and regarded it as easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, Say to them, Do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you. Otherwise you will be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, but you would not listen. Instead, you rebelled against the command of the Lord and acted presumptuously and went up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and crushed you from Seir to Horma. But you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. So you remained in Kaddish many days, the days that you spent there. And now we turn to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 27 to 32. With respect to the Lord's Supper, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading and our understanding of his word. For the church's own health and her testimony of Jesus Christ to the world, we do well to think through carefully why it is we gather for Bible instruction as we do today. Why do we do this? Countless people in countless churches minimize and trivialize the word of God. Preachers in in many of those churches might inject a few inspirational or motivational ideas to garnish the plate of spiritually nutrition-free entertainment or politics or church traditions. But in doing so, They deal the enemy of our souls a glancing blow at best, at very best. If they fail to serve up the word of God in heaping generous servings as the meat and potatoes of the Christian life that it actually is, then they are not giving us biblical Christianity. Others, including many in Reformed churches, analyze the word of God and they may lock it away in their minds and then go on about their lives no wiser in practical terms than they were before. All of which is to say that people receive the word of the kingdom or fail to receive it just as the Lord Jesus taught in his parable of the soils. 
We do well then to ponder Paul's guidance to Timothy when he said, now the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Dear friends, we are gathered here today not just to fill a block of time on Sunday morning. There is a goal to our instruction. Our Heavenly Father meets with us here every Lord's Day and points us in the practical direction known for ages as godliness, the doing of God's will and not our own. In Christianity, that's worthy of the name, faith and obedience always appear together. Always. If the word of God doesn't soften and change you, if it doesn't mold and shape you, if it doesn't render you more loving as the Lord Jesus Christ loves us, then there's a problem, and the problem clearly isn't with the word of God. On the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan, some 14 centuries before Christ, Moses explains God's law to this new generation that is rising in Israel. And this book of Deuteronomy, this book is the divinely inspired substance, we might almost call it the manuscript, the sermon manuscript, of those sermons Moses preached, along with historical notes. And he begins by talking to those assembled young people, and it was the younger generation. He begins by talking to them, not about their glorious future in the good land ahead of them, He begins by reminding them of their very inglorious past. Here is a commencement speech of sorts, a commencement speech that opens with a listing of the misdeeds, the truancy, the demerits of their years in the school of God's grace. A listing of things they've done wrong over the past 40 years and more. In fact, he devotes four whole chapters to this painful backward look at their own history. Now, why does he do this? Why does Moses do this at this point? Well, this is a formative stage in the life of the new nation, Israel, isn't it? It's a formative point, a transition point. There on the plains of Moab, poised to cross the Jordan, Israel is standing at a crossroads of their own history. And any nation that is standing at a crossroads needs to be realistic about itself, needs to be realistic about our natural tendencies. We need to understand who it is we really are. Not what we imagine ourselves to be. Because our identity as a people isn't found in the dreams that we dream, the aspirations that we aspire to across the river. The key to any people's identity, Israel or our own, the key to any people's identity is our history. Our history shows us who it is we are. And this is a peculiar people. This is a nation set apart from all the other nations. This is a people God sovereignly chose in order to demonstrate before all the watching world that salvation is of the Lord. That we add to this deliverance exactly nothing of our own. All the glory is his. 
Before Israel goes in to take possession of the promised land, she's got to hear again and take to heart the immensity of her covenant privileges. She's reminded again that there is no ground for boasting but in the saving strength of God alone. Because here she is at the threshold of the promise, the threshold of the good land, and she didn't get this far all by herself. In fact, over the past 40 years, ever since her divine deliverance from the iron furnace of slavery in Egypt, Israel has done everything humanly possible to forfeit that covenant relationship with God. And it's a tender and merciful mediator who, in Deuteronomy 1, passes lightly over most of it. You'll find the grim details of those years, those wilderness wanderings recorded in the book of Numbers, particularly chapters 11 to 14. And many are the times God is ready to destroy this nation that's on its way to the good land. According to the covenant that was sealed at Mount Sinai, terms to which Israel had agreed, the Lord had every right to do so. To wipe them out for their sin, for their rebellion, for their stiff necks. And simply start over again. But in transcendent mercy, he looks beyond the law. He looks back to those unconditional promises made centuries before to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So in a word, the lost generation was lost and died in the wilderness, never to see the promised land, They died there on account of their self-will. Their self-will. It was a stubborn, stiff-necked generation. God willed one thing for Israel back in those days, and he made that one thing perfectly clear, not once but multiple times. Verse 21. Look, the Lord your God has placed the land before you, Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. As he said at the mountain, and as he said all along the way through the wilderness, he wills not our destruction, but our rescue and our redemption and our rest and our repose in that good land of promise. That's what he wants for us. And his ability to bring them in never faltered, never failed. He'd have had them in Canaan. He'd have had them driving out the Canaanites in a matter of 11 days. That's how Deuteronomy opens, isn't it? It's 11 days from here to there. Two weeks after receiving the law at Sinai, they might have been executing God's justice on those reprobate Canaanites, and simultaneously fulfilling his gracious promise to the fathers. Israel's part in the whole project and our part is simply to trust and obey him. Trust him. Obey him. We've already seen, beloved, these things are recorded for our instruction. So let's take a few minutes to consider first the marks of the self-willed people. The marks of a self-willed people. And then secondly, God's judgment on the sin of self-will. The first mark, glaring mark of the self-willed people is this craven fear. They suffer. Fear. Fear, that is, 
of the creature and not of the creator. If we feared our creator as we should, what room could possibly be left in our hearts and minds for the fear of man? I ask you, if we fear the creator as we should, how could we ever fear men? A proper fear of God drives the fear of men away. Wasn't that the effect that the fear of God had on John Knox in the 16th century? Or Stonewall Jackson in the 19th century? And countless other believers in every age. Nothing stops them. The sensible, rational, wholehearted fear of God consumes every other fear and makes us bold. Five of you will chase a hundred. And a hundred of you will chase ten thousand and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. That's God's promise, beloved, not mine. You'll find it in the thrilling book of Leviticus chapter 26. If you want to overcome your fears, then fear God. But it was an ungodly fear. It was the fear of men that was filling the hearts of Israel. Fear of circumstances. Fear of whatever might lie over the next hill or around the next bend. Because whatever else it might be, it might be scary. It might be big or tall or stand in our way. It might be a city fortified to heaven. It might take a stand against us. And so abandoning the promises of God, the clear promises of God, and fearing instead the finite, time and space bound creature, the self-willed nation forgets the motto of the victorious Christian. That one clarion question upon which turns every major decision we will ever make in life. And you know the question. The question is, if God is for us, who can be against us? It all boils down to this. The courage that these words ignite in the believer's heart is every Christian's birthright. The words are the banner under which we carry out our commission in the world. If the Lord Jesus Christ has given us this great commission, and if he is with us, who dares stand against us? Israel had moved through the wilderness as far north as Kadesh Barnea. The God that they knew had just led them miraculously out of Egypt, miraculously through the Red Sea. This was the God of their fathers. This was the God who spoke to them audibly at Mount Sinai. The God who condescended even to appear to them, appear to their senses in that visible pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. They knew this God, their God of the covenant. Nevertheless, knowing God as they did, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Instead, what do they do? They fear the Amorite whom they did not yet see. But, if the spies said they were there and that they're tall, then they must be there and they must be tall. And if they're tall, then they're obviously invincible, right? Well, for his part, God had declared the Amorites to be a nation whose time on earth had expired. It had come to an end. Their national degradation made the Amorites, along with all the other nations of Canaan, 
strategically vulnerable, fragile, ready to topple, not from without by an invader, ready to topple from within. And sin left unchecked in any nation will do that. Like termites to a building, sin eats away at a nation's strength. Intelligence gathered not long after Moses died showed that the Canaanites across the river, the Canaanites aren't only spiritually and morally rotted out, they are actually in a state of panic before Israel and her God. Panic. That was Rahab's testimony to the two spies that Joshua sent ahead into Jericho. Rahab said, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. The Canaanites, at least, had taken to heart the hard evidence of history that was unfolding before them. Even they, the Canaanites, must have sensed their ripeness for judgment, that religiously and morally, socially and politically, they represent a culture that is beyond the hope of recovery. Canaan is just, at this point in history, Canaan is just one vast house of cards that's ready to collapse at the first sneeze of a righteous man. So for God to say, Go up and succeed. Go up and take the land. That is no idle promise. It's the revealed will of God and the moral situation in the land rendered their whole society wide open to invasion and ruin. The Amorites in the fourth century since Abraham lived there had become a nation absolutely begging to be dispossessed. A faithful nation intent on doing God's will and not its own might almost have dispossessed the Amorites and all the other Canaanite nations without a fight and without loss to themselves. The living God goes before you. Just follow him. Walk in and take it. But of course, the self-willed nation isn't content to have God, infinite in wisdom and power, go on ahead of them. They would much rather send in a small vanguard of fallible men, these spies, and follow their lead. See what they have to say. That's the craziness to which fear of the creature, not of the creator, will do to a nation. And it has terrible consequences in terms of lost opportunities, lost lives, and even a lost generation. Fear. Verses 23 to 28 show us the second mark of a self-willed people, and it's fabrication. Fabrication. We have fear and fabrication. We fabricate excuses for our disobedience. First we fear and then we devise a lie, a myth, a storyline to rationalize our completely irrational disobedience. The 12 spies come back after 40 days of recon in the good land and the land they report isn't just good, 
This land is good beyond anyone's wildest dreams. This is better than we thought. This land that the Lord our God has promised us is off the chart bountiful. It takes two men to muscle a single cluster of grapes out of this good land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 25, it's a good land which the Lord our God is giving us. Now we need to notice this, friends. All 12 men agreed on this. All 12 of the spies agreed on this. They also, all 12, agreed on the stature of the Canaanites and the fortification of their cities. All 12 agreed on the hard facts of the matter. They differ, as men always differ, depending on the condition of their souls. They differ on the matter of how to interpret those facts. And too seldom is faithfulness the majority report. To cover their fear, they make their panic, their own panic, look rational. And the courage of true faith, irrational. In order to do that, the self-willed people fabricate a lie that is so black, so horrific, it flies in the face of everything they know to be true about God and reality. But you know what? Self-willed people go with it anyway. We'll go with it anyway. God's been making it absolutely plain to his covenant people for over 400 years, ever since those days of Abraham, I will bless you and multiply you as the stars of heaven and give you the land and make you a blessing to every nation on earth. I will do it. Caleb and Joshua bringing the minority report of true and courageous faith believe the word of God. Moses believes it. But self-will says, because the Lord hates us. He's brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Is there any greater blasphemy one might have concocted against the Lord their God who had just carried them to freedom? As a man carries his son. This is slander against God. It's without truth. It's without evidence. It's against all the evidence. It's without faith. It's without reason or rationale. But it's a story And it's the best they can do to cover their sin of self-will. A fearful and fabricating people, stubbornly intent on doing their own will, are also naturally forgetful. They are forgetful. And when I say forgetful, I mean forgetful of the preached word of God. Because the word of God preached to them undermines their storyline, undermines their fabrication. Unknown to Israel, the Canaanites are all in a dither about Israel and the Lord her God. Unknown to the Canaanites, Israel's all in a dither about the Canaanites and their city walls. This reads almost like a Shakespearean comedy, doesn't it? Both sides are in a panic because of the other, and they don't know it. The Lord God of Israel, however, is decidedly not in a panic, nor by grace are these few good men of great faith and stout heart. Moses, Joshua, Caleb. And would that we could mention even one or two names more. But we can't. 
in this nation of over 600,000 fighting men, so-called fighting men, three men only stand apart, by far the oldest and wisest men there, men of experience with God. There is no giant in Canaan to compare with these three giants of faith. Indomitable men. Invincible men. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Men made more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now here's the point. It was the word of God that made them that way. It's the word of God that will make you that way. If God determines to make of us a strong and invincible people, then it's going to happen through remembering and practicing the means of grace that he's ordained. And don't be mistaken, he intends the women folk to be every bit as courageous, as strong as their men. Have another look at the 144th Psalm sometime and see what it says in the 12th verse of the 144th Psalm about our daughters. Let them be as corner pillars fashioned as for a palace. And I used to think this spoke only of the daughter's beauty until I realized that the corner pillars, beautiful as they may be, the corner pillars are what hold up the building. It speaks of strength. Our women as our men must be strong in the Lord. And this strength in men and women alike comes only by exercising the means of grace that God himself ordained. Moses knew the power of the preached word. Verse 29. Then I said to you, do not be shocked nor fear them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord carried you just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. This is the word that he preaches to them. Moses speaks to their heart. He speaks to their own personal experience. Who parted the Red Sea and led his people through on dry land? And who then drowned Pharaoh's charioteers under the wall of water collapsing behind them? Who fed those 600,000 fighting men and their families in a barren desert for 40 years? Who covered the ground three feet deep with quail to satisfy the finicky taste of a people who were weary of manna, which was yet another miracle that you saw with your own eyes and tasted with your own mouths? Who provided water out of rock of flint? He's gone before you. He always has. He's fought your battles. He carried you when you were hot and tired and whiny. He's done it all for you. But for all this, Moses says, you did not trust the Lord your God, whom you saw every single day in the cloud, every single night in the fire, Self-willed people today try to make the validity of the preached word contingent on their own personal assessment of it. Essentially, their position runs like this. If you show me some miraculous sign, then I'll believe your gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you make your gospel an empirical 
observable event that I can measure and interpret according to the rules of any public high school science lab, if you make it logically a watertight case that has no other possible explanation according to my naturalistic worldview, then I'll believe it. But friends, first of all, this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ can't be accounted for using the paltry tools of the natural mind. The natural mind just isn't up to the task. It's like measuring the volume of the ocean when all you've got to measure it out is is a teaspoon. Because the gospel blows away all these naturalistic presuppositions that we want to bring to bear against it. So we need not a smaller gospel that we can measure. We need bigger minds to embrace it. The surpassing glory of Christ crucified, risen, ascended, and reigning, that gospel crushes this little closed box universe of the secular humanist crushes it. His tools can't begin to measure it, much less understand it. The unbeliever's intellect may be razor sharp to cut into the specimen before him, but he's doing the surgery in complete darkness. And no one is well served by a surgeon who does his work in the dark. But there's more to the problem of naturalistic unbelief Not only do the tools of the unenlightened natural mind fail to comprehend and so rest in the gospel, even the claim that I would believe it if it could be proven to my satisfaction isn't true. It's not true. It's another fabrication. Israel's experience in the wilderness is a foreshadowing of our own 21st century unbelief, like the parables of Jesus, signs and wonders also cut both ways. Christian apologetics, the defense of the faith, cuts both ways. They help the faithful to believe while they harden the faithless in their unbelief. Here we have Moses and the prophets, available virtually to the entire world in their own languages now, we have Moses and the prophets available to everyone on the planet. So do we believe? If we do, it's not because of the signs and wonders we see. And if we don't, neither would we believe them if one were to rise from the dead. Fearing the creature rather than the creator, fabricating excuses for the irrationality of unbelief, and forgetting the word of God preached to the heart, these are the marks of the self-willed people who say in their hearts, if not with their lips, not thy will, be done, but mine. Those are the marks. What then must be the judgment of God on the self-willed nation? Well, first, there's the personal aspect of the judgment. It touches the unbeliever as an individual as the wrath of God abides on him. God gives him up. Gives him over. Now not for an instant does God give up on his promise. But how long will he extend his gracious promise to a people who obstinately say, stop When he says go, who say go when he says stop. 
You want stubbornly to fear the Amorite and serve the creature? Fine. You want stubbornly to lie against the plain, self-evident truth that of God's mighty work in history? Fine. You want stubbornly to persist in forgetting the means of grace extended you? Fine. But the self-willed sinner, the self-willed nation, won't, by doing so, thwart God's covenant or derail his plans. God is not mocked. And if branches were broken off to graft you in, branches can be broken off to graft in others, faithful, believing others in your place. For there is no partiality with God. So the self-willed person or nation doesn't prove the promise of God to be untrue. They only succeed in proving that those promises aren't for them. Maybe instead in God's mercy, it's for those little ones that you said were going to fall prey in the wilderness. Or maybe it's for the Jericho Rahabs and the Moabite Ruths who feared the Lord better than his own people did. Verse 39, God says, I will give it to them and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn around and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Do you hear what he's saying to the stiff-necked people who will not trust and obey? He's saying, go back where you came from. Just go back where you came from. Apparently the promise isn't for you. To wander and grope and drift and hear these promises of a good land but never actually see it, never actually enjoy it. To end your days with a sigh when the good land was once within your grasp, When it was there for the taking, can you imagine a more bitter end to a life whose beginning was so bright with promise? Of a privileged but neglectful people, the writer to the Hebrews says, it's impossible. And that is a fearful word. That is a terrifying word. It is impossible. For those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. It's a fearful prospect to be almost there, but not quite. To perish not far from the kingdom of God. But there's more to God's judgment on self-will than just the personal side of it. There's also the social aspect. Moses hints at this when he says in verse 37, the Lord was also angry with me for your sakes, saying, even you shall not go in there. And so I leave you today with this question, friends. What might your stubborn self-will be doing to those you love? To those who live with you or live beside you? Are you a light shining for Jesus Christ? Thanks be to God, some of you are, many of you are. And you do shine. But there are professing Christians, sadly, who spread not light, but a spiritual contagion 
Their own unbelief renders them a danger to themselves and others. Do not be deceived, says the apostle. Bad company corrupts good morals. May our godly demeanor, our words, our decisions made in faith be always a savor of life to life. His will, not mine, be done. The terrifying truth is that even repentance by being too little too late can be sin. That's the lesson of verse 44. God said, go. Israel said, no. When they hear his sentence pronounced on their unbelief, Israel said, go. And God said, no. That is the essence of being out of step with the Spirit. Beloved, I've talked a long time, and this sad history is given for our instruction. The living God is not mocked. You'll never find Jehovah, the living God, the covenant God, you'll never find him at the end of Israel's leash. You'll never find him at Israel's beck and call their servant. Nor that of the New Testament church. Like Narnia's Aslan, our God is a lion and not a tame one. He's our Lord, our God, our Christ, our strength, and our song, and he has become our salvation. His will, not ours, be done. Amen.